Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Sisters in Color, the podcast where we bring you amazing women from around the globe, women of color who are changing the narrative, who are aspiring and doing uh, great things in the spaces that they occupy. Today, I've got a dear sister friend of mine from the African continent, from the wonderful country of Botswana, which is a neighbor of mine. I've been really dying to, to have this conversation with this amazing human being who oozes uh, joy the minute she walks into a room. Uh, she's one of the first people I met when I first moved to uh, to Brisbane who really had um, the same thought patterns as me as to how do we change um, the narrative around conversations around people of colour. So my uh, welcome to my good friend Sharon. Sharon, how are you? Hello, I am awesome this morning. Thank you. Um, do you want it to me to just say who I am? Uh, and this is what I do uh, in terms of introducing myself and setting the scene uh, of who I am. Malebucho asamezi kalaya yatipi zile ashebanang abutuko aditabi abutuko amuhajana atito amusadi atala. I've just introduced you to the lineage of my ancestors. Um, so that I can be here fully uh, and available for you with them all around me as they always are. You are truly amazing and such a treasure to our community. So before we get uh, you know, into the conversation around your career, can you take us a little bit of back into who Sharon is, who are you? As I mentioned, all of those people make me who I am. In the village of Hebron, uh, south of Botswana, is where I grew up. And I grew up um, in, the, in the household with my elders. My grandparents raised me. My mother had me when she was barely 20 years old um, and had to quickly go back to uh, school to, to, to go back to school, nursing, nursing midwifery. And my grandparents said, leave her with us. We will look after her. I was raised with love. I was raised with protection. I was raised by community. Um, I know what love and safe, safety looks like. Um, but I also know about loss and abandonment, which is things that I felt uh, having my mother not be there with me as I was growing up even though I had everything else that I needed around me. Um, so when I think about who I am, I think back to where I come from, who made me who I am. But I also uh, look at the journey to now. I am a mother. I am a wife. I'm a fur mother. I had two dogs. <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> but I also... Um, seen as a community leader. I don't see myself as a community leader. I see myself as a community advocate because every single thing I do, personally, professionally, I do for myself and for others because I believe it's always seemed like a selfish reason. If I can remove the barriers for other people, I remove the barriers for myself, um, my family, my child. I smoother the pathway for everyone. That's who I am. 
That is so beautiful, Sharon. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit about your early years? Now, you touched on them a bit. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around how African children are raised and how they grow up and that sense of uh, of community and that sense of love that you grew up you grew up with. Can you take us just a little bit back to your, your early days, early days Anna, and what you can remember about that? I... I... I have incredible vivid memories of my childhood. Um, you can imagine growing up uh, in a village that has not um, at that time developed as much. I mean, even now is not yet developed um, as, as, as we would like it to be. Um, but I, I was in a farm Barolon Farms, Hebron is part of an area that's our tribe um, uh, do farming uh, and is known as Barolon Farms. So I grow grown up in a farm, we had cattle, we had goats, we had sheep, we had all the kind of livestock you can imagine. Um, but also we're subsistence farmers as, as that area is rich in soil and so I always often say my grandparents raised me from the bag of black eye beans because um, we used to farm and, and, and grow these black eye beans, soga, maize, um, all of these kind of traditional foods. And my grandparents would use, you put all of this in the bags and put them on the back of a donkey cart to go and sell them um, to, 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 to uh, another area that's not very far away. So you can imagine how that was a part of making money and again, gathering the things that they need to feed the family. Uh, to give me the things that I needed to buy me clothes. My grandmother apparently loved buying me clothes and loved buying me these sparkly clothes. That's probably the reason why I still wear so much sparkles every time. And they suit you. <laughs> but uh, one of the other things, my, my grandmother died when I was four. So my grandfather had to take over the role of uh, looking after me and he did a damn good job. Um, one of the things he was always cautious about was uh, growing around, growing up around uh, boys. My, grandma, my grandfather wanted me to be strong. So these elders have their ways of 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 instilling things to us that you know when you are when we are old we look back and say what was that? Uh, but my grand my grandfather actually loved cutting my hair. So he he said hair uh, was going to eat all my nutrients from my body. So then I would not be as strong as the boys and I would not be able to look after the, in help look after the, the, the livestock and, and work in the farm. So he always cut my hair. I was bald probably every single time since I was, until I was 10. Um, but then look at me, how big I have grown. Hmm. Uh, you know, look at, I've always then been seen as a big girl, you know, I've, you've grown, I never was, um, you know, the same height or the same build as people at my age. And sometimes I look back and I said, I always remember him saying, you have to be strong as anybody else. You have to drink that milk straight from the cows because that's going to make you strong. You have to cut your hair so that it doesn't have all your nutrients and you don't grow as uh, to the best of your ability. You know, that is the childhood mm -hmm. that I, uh, I I was raised in and the childhood, uh, the joy of life in the village with your elders and the wisdom that had been instilled in me. 
So when you were growing up, I mean, we all have childhood dreams about who we want to be when we grow up. What was Sharon's childhood dream? Who did you want to be uh, career-wise when you grew up? What did you see yourself doing? You know, I, I remember growing up in a village with the vastness of land, the vastness of the sky. A child like me had dreams beyond our own imagination. You know, I would sit and lie down sometimes under the tree and watch the sky and, and see a plane passing, so small, tiny little plane right up in the sky. I'm thinking, there is a world out there and I would like to explore this world. So I was known as a daydreamer. I loved dreaming because I spent the time with nature, which allows you to get your imagination go wild. Um, so I used to see myself going somewhere. I knew I wanted to be as educated as my mother mm -hmm. because having a mother who went to school, who was doing things for her family was something that made me so proud. Mm -hmm. uh, so I knew that I wanted to ensure that I get my schooling right, that I, I, I learn English. I knew that I needed to learn English by reading. In fact, I kind of self-taught uh, in the village. Uh, English wasn't necessarily uh, something that was really enforced in the school because uh, this is a rural school. So, But we had a, a library uh, van that came every week and I used to get five books from the library, library uh, van and I would read them. I knew I loved to help people. But also because I was I was always looking at the vastness of the sky and every evening sitting there with my grandfather and looking at the Milky Way, looking at the stars, looking at the moon. And, you know, um, my grandfather telling me all these stories. I could name different stars. I could, whatever, when a star falls, I knew a chief somewhere is dying. <laughs> you know, I had, there was this narrative about our connection with land and, and the sky and culture. So I ended up wa also wanting to be, um, you know, an astronaut. I wanted to go there. I wanted to go and find out what, what all of that means. So that was the kind of dreams in terms of career. I wanted to go somewhere. I wanted to be an astronaut. I, wanted, I also knew that I didn't want to work with animals mm -hmm. because um, I was tired of them. <laughs> After growing with them, I was tired of the animals. <laughs> so being a vet was not part of your career? It was not part of my career structure. Because <laughs> I saw what they did when they came in. And, and I was like, no, nah, I'd rather just eat them. No. <laughs> I know <laughs> that's, with them. <laughs> that's not for me. So yeah. about school, what was your school experience like when you obviously you grew up and you were, um, you know, you were in school? What was your 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 school? experience like your high school experience what was what was that like and how did that start to shape your thinking around what your career prospects could be my primary school was as basic um as as it can be in a rural village um and at 12 uh, my mother uh, decided that in order to uh, progress, I needed to go and be part of the family in, in the city where she was living with uh, the family and my, my sisters. Um, so I had to transition, but I had prepared myself. Also, my grandfather had ensured that I was prepared um, because I needed to 
to try by every means not to be different because there is the difference between uh, schooling in a rural village and schooling in, in, in the city. So I knew where my sisters were at. Um, I need. I didn't need to be different from them. Uh, that was something that was. Ve I was very conscious of early on. Um, hence the reading. Uh, the hence the, the 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 incredible making sure I do my homework. I get on top of it. Um, I needed to be at the same level. So when I transitioned at twelve to be in the city. Um, uh, you know, being a rural girl, there was always that kind of people can tell you're not from here. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I still kind of felt a bit left behind um, in that in that in in that sense. So my early secondary school, um, I started to struggle, but also there was a sense of loss because the safety net that I had grown up in, the community love, and and you know living in the city in rural area is very different. So I couldn't just walk over to my to my cousin's place. My cousins couldn't come in and play all night, and we couldn't just uh, you know ride the uh, 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 you know ride our animals as we used to and play with them as we used to. Uh, so it was a big change for me. Um, so this one's just this wasn't just a visit. This was living in the city. Um, and I started to be aware of being, being left behind. And I struggled. I struggled. But also there was other things that were happening in my life at that time. Um, Family-wise, you know, I, I, there was, there was um, in, in, in our family, there was, there was, felt like I didn't belong. Mm -hmm. yeah, I just felt I didn't belong. And when those kind of personal things starts to to creep up, um, but also there was abuse happening uh, at that time that I experienced um, very early on as 14. Um, and, you know, so the sense of safety, the sense of, 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 of the kind of love that I had hoped would surround me, the kind of, you know, the connections, all of those kind of structures that had been there started to crumble away. So I, kind of didn't do very well at my uh, my early secondary school. And then high school, I had to be sent to private school. Mm -hmm. And um, and the private school, again, was very hard. I was starting to try, struggling to heal, but also my mother left and went to the US um, to study at that time to do her master's. Um, and again, I just kept feeling I was being left behind. Mm -hmm. I was being left behind. Um, what I knew, because my mother was also working around mental health, mm -hmm. um, there were books of mental health. So this is me now in the city, the books of her, her training, there were books of, she, she was a lecturer in, in, in mental health. So there were, there were books of psychology, psychiatry, um, and, and my safety went to books. My, my, I loved feeding my mind. So um, I, I read. I read, you know, the people who were around me in my senior school, high school, would tell you I was the counselor of the class because I could read, I could write very well. Um, and I would be the one who writes boyfriend's letters. <laughs> when they have issues with their boyfriends, they come to me and I write the letters for them and they go and post. Um, if they have issues, they will come to me and to talk to me about it. You became so, Auntie Sharon. <laughs> I became the Auntie Sharon. You know, I think when I look back, um, 
I think I created the safety space mm-hmm. for others as a space I needed for myself. So I created things that I needed for me, but I created them for others. I think that's what really shaped me. And I and I was very strong about this because I, I I didn't want any other child to be left behind. That was that was really strong for me. And even my voluntary work, uh, I started being, um, you know, going and and uh, you know working or volunteering volunteering with a, a family association, Botswana Family Welfare Association, being a peer worker um, with young, other young people. This is the time when HIV and AIDS was was ripe, rampaging around. Uh, the world and I was starting to the influx of it um I needed I needed to to speak up so I I you know did some educational sessions for young people I went to co-hosted a radio session in Botswana radio um uh, in a a show that was about teenagers and talked to teenagers about uh, behavioral issues around AIDS how to look after themselves what to be aware of and I started going around the country actually educating other young people uh this this is me at 16 right educating other young people um to um to 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 look after themselves um and not to get hiv and aids and uh, i connected with them because i was also a young person myself so this peer education uh, and peer work um also then transitioned me into when uh, when we finished high school in Botswana at that time you could go and be placed in an area of interest for a year so we called it Trelosichaba. It was like a public service that you could do. But this is this was designed so you have a, an actual experiential before you make decisions about you know future studies and all of that. You finished your your high school. You have one year in an area of interest. My area of interest, of course, was guidance and counseling. So I was I was placed in the department uh, of education under guidance and counseling um, branch and. And again, that allowed me uh, to go around the country hosting sessions, supporting teachers. So 17, 18, I, I was already immersed in this world of community building, community education, awareness and, uh, and building safety. And, and, and I knew then exactly where my career lies. That is amazing. And that experience that you talk about at 16, because I'm raising a teenage boy myself, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking that is, you know, amazing to be immersed in whatever it is you think at that time. Because I know, you know, as teenagers, uh, there's very few adults I've spoken to who have actually ended up doing what they thought they would do at 16 because, you know, they've learned more and they've kind of grown. So I think that experience, that's really, really good for me to to learn. I didn't realize Botswana had that because I certainly didn't have that in Zimbabwe we just continued on the academia pathway you just went and you did your GCE um, advanced level and then from there you you went to university there was no um, career pathing in that way that was yeah. into our into our curricula unless of course if you're going into defense forces or you're going you know down a TAFE route or you know an apprenticeship route um, yeah. those were, which are still routes that are available today nothing like yeah. what what you, uh, you know, are you uh, if that program is no longer there, and it's a shame. 
um, it's a shame. And I, I think there was a decisions that um, it was kind of holding people back uh, from, you know, because it was kind of a national service. We had to do it. But that is, a, you know, this is why when I look at the the people of my time mm -hmm. in, in, in Botswana who have gone through that, we're so cemented. We knew and we had to experience life. For example, there are people who had to leave their families um, and, and go to other villages mm -hmm. for that period of 12 months to go and actually work in an area that they kind of want as a career so you ended up having to start to be independent to 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 because we were given it what we call a stipend uh, so you you had to start learning how to budget and and, and using money and and uh, you know doing the linkages and you know and every time you talk to people who've gone through that period will tell you that actually built us you know, <laughs> so when I left Botswana at 19 to yeah. come to Australia yeah. to study, to study psychology, mm -hmm. I knew one. In fact, I am the one, my parents didn't look for scholarship for me, didn't look for school for me, uh, because I was at that time already so entrenched, already in the system, part of the system, I could find opportunities for myself. I told them in December when I was leaving to Australia in February to say, I am going to Australia, I am going to this university, I am going to do this. <laughs> and they were looking at me like, you're late. <laughs> what? What's going But I, I had, at that time, I had taken control of <laughs> my life and my pathways. Um, and um, I was already sat within that. And it is through those experiences that and the networks that I had to create for myself and that has helped to, for me to be here where, where, where I am. Um, immersion experiences are the greatest uh, um, educator. Yeah. I, I agree. I have to agree. I definitely agree. In, in the work that I do, I, I use virtual reality and immersive experience. That's kind of like compressing it to a very short period of time. But yeah. you can see how exponentially putting a person in exactly what you described can really shape and it's worked for you. So if I fast forward to, um, you know, how you are building your career, and I know you're exceptionally passionate as you've spoken about, about the mental health space and things like that. How are you finding, um, first of all, tell us how you founded your company, Psych Solutions. Tell us how, um, how that all came about. I think when I finish my master's, uh, in fact, all my time in Australia, uh, community connections were part of who I am. I remember uh, when I was in, in La Trobe University, um, doing my degree, uh, looked around and, and, and would hear the struggles of African um, you know, students uh, within the university, and we decided to set up an African, um, you know, association. For example, said you know, collectively we can do more. So I started to to, to create that, um, you know, structures of community, um, so that we uh, we create safe spaces for ourselves to discuss the the things that we want to discuss, but also we come up with some solutions and support each other in a structure, um, and. You know, I kept doing that. I was involved in radio. I then went home uh, for a year 
um, and worked at home. Um, there was, this was the break between my 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 first degrees and uh, and and postgraduate degrees. So I again I knew I needed to go back in, immerse myself mm -hmm. uh, into the experience of working within the field, um, then came back to do my master's, mm -hmm. uh, postgraduate studies. Um, and, and when I started actual working, um, and again, as part of the training, you are supposed to do some placements. So there's this continuing journey of, of, of studying and while you're working in the field. Um, but into mental health, the state is responsible um, for people with severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. This is just how the structure of mental health service delivery is. And I knew that people from uh, from our background, cultural um, uh, and linguistically diverse backgrounds, we have a different understanding of what mental health um, is and, and how it impacts on us. We have our own kind of uh, explanatory models of mental health issues. Um, we are often coming into the system very late, um, in, in late as in, in, in a very severe um, experience of the illness. So we are uh, often um, involuntary uh, treated in, in hospitals. Um, and that journey when somebody comes in, when things have already been so bad, when you look at it, your structures, yourself, not only are you so injured and so unwell, um, your family has has also uh, uh, have felt the brunt of it. Yep. Um, yep. The community has felt the brunt of it because you are not in the space to be able to fully apply yourself and 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 contribute. You are unwell, mm -hmm. so we see the loss mm -hmm. of self, the loss of income, the loss from community, and the loss from work um, that is experienced. And as you know. Uh, uh, many people from diaspora, we are holding our families back home. They are relying on us. So when you are unwell, when you are unwell and not able to work and not able to do the pressures that are coming from there as well, uh, become too much and you're not able to do the things that you could do if you are well. And I recognize that it's just because we have a different understanding of what mental health issues are. So to be able to fully work um, in the system, to advise the system on the services, I needed to also make sure that the community is aware of what's going on. Awareness of mental health issues, the stigma, the discrimination, all of that needed to happen. The only avenue for me to do that was through setting up my own consultancy to do that. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, and what it has done for 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 the, in fact for the last fifteen years um, that I've been in this space, mm -hmm. uh, I I now able to look at mental health in a whole continuum. Mm -hmm. So by doing awareness and training and education, because I know it works. I did it at 16 years old with HIV and AIDS issues. I know it works. It's an uncomfortable conversation, but I know if we were able to to intervene early. We wouldn't be so unwell. If we're able to just uh, do things to look after ourselves, we can increase the risks, the protective factors 
that the cushioning so that we when we experience lives up and down we have things already set up the structures already set up to hold ourselves so we can back, go back to center that is critical um i do not want to continue to see over representation of people from culturally and linguistically diverse background in our mental health system yep. um uh, and because I know the system, I work in the system, mm -hmm. I know what L intervention does. Mm -hmm. So Psych Solution has allowed me um, to have that avenue to support the community and create the understanding mm -hmm. and healing and support that needs to be there so that we don't, we don't drift in. If we do drift in, I am working in my day job in mm -hmm. Queensland in, 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 as part of the, the, the work I do with government to ensure that the system will respond. Yep. Um, so it all kind of works so beautifully Biotic. together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does. Now, one of the things I really, you, one of the points that you brought up, which I'm really passionate about, particularly in my training with employers around getting a greater understanding of how do you provide um, supports that are appropriate for migrants within the workplace. You mentioned, um, I guess, the massive, uh, and I'll talk about the African community. Um, and, you know, I, I am taking license here a bit because not every situation is the same, but I'm just yeah. using this as, as a representation of the average, right? Yeah. Most people are first-generation migrants out, right? Or, um, and they are here. And once you've left the continent, there is an assumption that you have made it and automatically by not being there, you are at a much higher socioeconomic level, right? Yeah. The people that you have mostly left behind, you have a responsibility for. And that responsibility extends, and this is what a lot of employers don't understand, that responsibility extends beyond my mother's biological children. So that responsibility extends to that community that you spoke about earlier, right? If there's a death in that community, money needs to be sent home. If um, there is kids that need to be educated, right? When you are here, there is this unwritten expectation that you will create some pathways for those who are left behind to also pursue whatever their dreams and their goals are. And how do you create all of that? And then you've got your own kids. Then you've got, you know, what you need to do here. Then you have parental responsibilities, right? There is no real pension scheme in a lot of African countries. So a lot of us have that lifelong responsibility of taking care of our parents. And we take care of our parents, you know, in their home. They're not institutionalized in aged care environments. There's no government that's taking care of them. So a lot of employers don't understand that and understand the pressure that that brings, right? Yes. And also yes. when you're in the workplace, you are usually a lone ranger in that workplace, right? In terms yeah. of representation of your kind in that place, right? So there's yeah. very few people that you can have this conversation with, except in your community, right? Mm. So when you're doing your mental health training, and I know you're exceptionally passionate about educating employees about how to create some of these supports, what are some of the barriers that you are still finding when you go into um workplaces and talk to them about creating uh, psychologically safe workplaces you know what are some of the biggest barriers and I'm asking very specifically for like women of color for instance when you walk into the workplace 
I can tell you most workplaces I've gone to, there's no woman of color, first of all. <laughs> and that's a problem. So um, uh, I, I go into these workplaces and I, I talk about safety and, and I talk about um, the, the, you know, the ecosystem of otherness, as I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about the Ubuntu or the Boto and, and, and reconnecting with each other. You know, and I often scan, as, I, as, as you probably would, uh, uh, to look at, are there people of color in these workplaces that I'm entering? Mm-hmm. Um, and I find most, most 99% they are not. Um, and I often wonder where, where are they? <laughs> and I, I ask the question, I've asked questions and I often uh, get told uh, it is very difficult, difficult um, to attract people of color into the spaces, into some of these corporate spaces that I have been part of. Um, And you find that there is often a commitment when you look at the strategic plans of organizations to increase diversity uh, in the workplace. Um, And and so when there is, let me just say, when there is no person of color, already feels that this space is culturally unsafe. So we often uh, ask people to talk about what cultural, uh, what, what cultural safety looks like in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Now, if they don't have people of color, they have no one to actually bounce back on. They, they don't know how to create that culturally safe space because they say, well, I treat everybody the same. You know, I don't see color. Oh yes, <laughs> um, I don't see color, uh, and I have I've had um, things like, where do we stop? Do I now get in the spaces and say, how many how many women are in here? How many men are in here? Um, how many young people are here? How many old people? Where do we start and where do we stop? I get all of these questions, and I say, we start where we are at right now. Let's do a scan. Yeah, but there is no person of color here but they exist outside of that door and part of your community and part of the decisions making part of your service offerings that they are consuming your services, they are consuming your products, they are consuming, because they're here. Yeah. Um, Then there is a a section of a community that's missing. Mm -hmm. How can we start to be intentional in operationalizing all these big visions and and strategies that we have and policies that we have so we can actually see a real change. Mm -hmm. It starts with creating and thinking about uh, the roles, the roles that are coming in and being intentional about uh, ensuring that you go widely. If you have networks in the in, in, in the communities that are here, you go intentionally to them and say, hey, are you aware that we have a position that's out here? Um, do you know somebody who might be interested to, to apply? Because they might not be getting, they're not in your network, they're not in your mailing list, they're yeah. not checking, they might not even be there. Um, uh, or they might have a different um, a different experience that when you look at their resume and you look at their name and say, oh God, how are we going to pronounce this when they come in? And that bias comes in immediately um, in terms of a short listing. Uh, well, do you have somebody in the panel, maybe a community leader in the panel uh, 
from 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 a, a culturally linguistically diverse background as part of your recruiting process so or a first nations person uh, so that you are able to to provide that kind of uh, cultural safety within your recruitment um process so that whoever comes in could see themselves mm -hmm. as part of the space even if they might not, uh, you know, transition beyond the interview panel with whatever reason, but at least that entry, which is in recruitment, has already been shifted and become diverse. Hmm. It gets created some safe entry into the recruitment processes. Yeah. That is the kind of, and, and then you, of course, it transitions into, into right in the practical things that you need to do um, in the, in the, in, in the workplace. We often, people of color, carry so much in our workplaces with oh, the responsibilities of, of, of home, but also with, with the fact that we are different. Don't tell me you don't see color, but there is color. You actually, you do see me. You see me. You, you know what I mean. So it, and 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 then when we speak up, we becomes our as if it becomes a pseudo occupation, mm -hmm. a pseudo a task for us to then build the 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 cultural capability of our workplace. That's not my role. That's not my role. So these are the kind of conversations when I do what I do, and psychological safe spaces, completely bring the rawness and yeah, the realness yeah. of the conversation, because it has to be real. Mm -hmm. It has to be real. Um, that's the only way we can shape and change people's perception um, on how to actually do this better. And I love the way you sum that up in terms of how to do this better, because I think there's, for me, what I'm finding, there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of talk about what people would want to do. And then when I look at what you're actually investing in and the things that you put in your money, because it's it's one thing to say, I want to do something, but are you putting your money where your mouth is? Are you putting resources here? What are you actually bringing into this space to actually change this narrative? You've got yeah. this wonderful diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy, which a lot of, you know, people I talk to have, and it looks brilliant. It looks fantastic, it but it's a document that sits on your website. If I come into the organizational culture, is it living? Is it breathing? What that document says? You have got all of this analysis and all of this um, business cases that have been made for why diversity in your organization organization is fundamental. I mean, just look at the differences in the human race. For starters, you know, you don't, I don't even understand why we need to make a case for diversity. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that drives me insane. There is no business case for diversity. It, it, it's morally, I mean, there's no business case for it. it. This is some things that have to be done. And and, you know, I said to employers, rather than being shying away, saying we don't see color, oh, but we have this, we have to be real and do it an absolute, because um, you can't change what you don't acknowledge. Exactly. Saying, help me to move this. This is what leaders, this is what leaders need to do in every single workplace to say, help me and my team mm -hmm. to be able to shift from here to here. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't be about numbers, about things, and you can, and you look into your, your floor and, and you don't have, you know, I, I recently uh, did a session with over 200 leaders. Um, uh, and, you know, I remember in that session, 
um, I asked the question, I said, is there anyone here from African background? I looked around. I said, is there anyone from Aboriginal Torres Island who is Aboriginal Torres Islander here? I looked around. <laughs> and you know, it, it, I know it made them very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It was very challenging. And, and I felt they left thinking, this is just too hard. Yeah. And yeah. I said, but we have commitment. Mm -hmm. You have you have your all diversity subcommittees in your workplace. You all have all we have all these groups that are supposed to be action orientated. Mm -hmm. Utilize them. Be purposeful in how you utilize them. Now you realize in your leadership. I don't. I'm, I'm not saying the people on the ground because the people on the ground are the ones who are doing the work. Mm -hmm. But you make the decisions, and if you're not having them represented in that leadership, in your leadership role, then you are basically missing out. It's not a consultation for a subgroup, a diversity DEI, DEI subcommittee, or um, you know the RAP uh, reconciliation excellent plan subcommittee. These are things that need to be embedded in your executive and, and, and senior leadership within every company and every every business. Because mm -hmm. it's only when you as leaders are leading, uh, you know, ethically, yeah. where you are leading with the, the eye of diversity and inclusion and you know what that means, mm -hmm. then it all flows in yeah. down to every part of your system. And that is a beautiful segue to uh, to close our conversation Sharon you are just a powerhouse I love the work that you do I'm I'm a big fan I've always been a big fan I've watched you develop uh, and bring your ideas and your energy and what I love most about you sis is when you walk into a room I said it at the beginning you exude joy like you've got this gorgeous smile, like everything about you smiles. You're one of those people who smiles with your entire being. So, you know, and that automatically lifts the room and it draws people to you. So the work that you're doing, particularly around mental health, the work you're doing in the community, the work you're doing to empower people, there isn't enough time in this podcast to talk about all the, <laughs> the amazing work you're doing. I'd love to bring you for a part two so we can talk about a lot of the philanthropic work that we yes. didn't get to that you do in the community you really are that beacon in our community everyone knows who you are <laughs> I when I first arrived Thank the, you. First, the first thing that was said to me was oh you need to meet Sharon I'm like oh, Sharon. and I, I had literally just arrived in Brisbane I'd been here for about a year and somebody said to me oh no, Sharon. <laughs> no, Sharon. Oh, you need to meet Sharon. I'm like, okay, who is the Sharon person? And why do I need to meet her? And when I <laughs> you, I absolutely understood why I needed to meet you and why you. I talk so highly of you. So we really want to thank you for your energy, for all the work that you're doing in this space. And we thank really, you. really want to see that grow and that continue. The conversation around mental health is so critical. And the conversation around how we create those safeties and to see a woman of color champion
championing that conversation, not just from a theoretical, but from a lived experience perspective, bringing the academia with it, bringing the lived experience, bringing the knowledge and the practical tools um, as to how do you transform a workplace? How do you actually create that safety? How do we bring more um, you know, multicultural communities into leadership um, positions? Absolutely. That's so exciting. Now, where can Thank people you. find you? How can people get in touch with you and with your work? Where can people find you? If you don't hear, have you met Sharon? Now you need to meet Sharon. Yeah. Then you haven't lived in Brisbane. <laughs> <laughs> I can agree with so that. I, I guess, you know, I find people calling me from everywhere because somebody had said that to, to them. Um, and because I, I am intentional about putting in my social media, being active in, and you know, so I get people actually contacting me as a result of, of, of being kind of a public. Um, and that putting putting um, my my contacts and my connections publicly. Um, I have been intentional about that so that people are able to connect with me when they need. And, um, and I, again, all organizations would know what I do and how I do my work and always refer people over to me. Um, I guess, you know, one of the things, as I said, I'm passionate about is making sure that people are not left behind in whatever. And I bring I bring the whole of me to what I do, where in spaces that I am. And, and because I need, to, you know, because there's no other way for me to do that. I, I bring me in and the whole of me, my culture, my, my joys, my pains, um, you know, my struggles to every space I occupy. And that, that is living authentically. Um, and, 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 and that, and I hope by, by demonstrating that, by by people seeing that and and experiencing that, you know, somebody did a comment on my Facebook, uh, LinkedIn yesterday, mm -hmm. which I loved so badly. I I, I even shed a tear. She said, um, "This is oh, from Anchored Cat." Mm -hmm. um, she said, um, "Sharon, you are an experience." Oh, that's. Gorgeous. Now I'm gonna cry. Oh, that's really that was really so uh, yeah. That sums you up, sis. You are experienced and to have experienced Sharonism, that's a word I've just made. <laughs> That's fun. Uh, it's such a joy. Uh, joy uh, so that's comment. tears of joy, and and um uh, and and reflecting on that comment. By the way, is um it was such a beautiful comment. It was, it was. And on that note, I just want to thank, thank you. you for your time. Um, I want to thank you for bringing your energy, bringing all of you, uh, and for waking up early in the morning before yeah. you start your day uh, to be with us, to 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 have this conversation. Uh, we will put uh, links to your um to your LinkedIn profile um, mm -hmm. on, uh, on our page uh, so that people can get in touch with you and follow the amazing work that you're doing. And we're definitely going to have you back at some later point for a part two to delve a lot into that, um, that philanthropic work, the empowerment of the girl child. Because for me personally, I grew up as a very empowered girl child. I didn't realize that was a privilege. I was raised by a man who was a feminist before I knew what feminism was. There was no planet my father was educated my brother better than me like you know if anything it was the other way around it was like I'm investing in my girls because they're more likely to look after me but I never was raised with 
um, a fact that I needed to think that, you know, my brother, because he was male from an education and career perspective, he he should have more options. You know, we can argue about the house chores. They didn't quite do that, right? You know, but, you know, but we're all working on that. But I didn't realize that was a position of privilege um, in that sense to be raised knowing that I can be and do whatever it is I choose to and that my parents will fully invest in that. I didn't realize that not every every African girl was raised with that. So yeah. having had that privilege, how do you pay that forward? And how Absolutely. do you support um, girls to aspire to that? And I know you're- I, I love to talk about, about that. that topic. As you know, I, I chair uh, the board of Ethne, which is a, a, um, an organization that supports um, uh, girls of uh, of color and uh and and I also uh intentionally work with um a women organization specifically um uh, you know it's my my absolute passion and I love yeah I love to have a conversation about that yeah so we'll bring you back and talk specifically around that because I know we have that in uh in 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 common and it'll be really good to to educate people on things that you're doing in that space because I know some really amazing things that you're doing so awesome. really would love to have you thank back you so everybody thanks for tuning in and thanks for listening um on behalf of our sponsors Utana Consulting I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in until next time when we bring you another uh, amazing woman of color it's goodbye for now